you know, there's this ego thing that you can have because, you know, you've worked so hard and you think you're really smart. And so you think you know, but you don't. <laughs> like listening involves like setting your ego back and really learning from someone else and internalizing that knowledge. So I think that's one of the things that I am really good at having done this so long is I've learned how to listen and learn how to be taught. And I, you know, culturally, I think I've also gotten good at building an organization that knows how to listen and knows how to be taught by the customer. From Qualtrics Studios, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall, head of brand at Qualtrics, builder, coach, storyteller, and your host. One of the truths of the entrepreneurial journey is that it's wrought with ups and downs, but sometimes the amplitude of those ups and downs can get a little dramatized. Just watch an episode of Silicon Valley or go back and read an issue of Wired from the early 2000s and you'll see what I mean. When you ask entrepreneurs for advice, many will say, don't get too high on your success and don't get too down on yourself when things don't work out. The most accomplished builders have a way of keeping everything in perspective. But how? To help answer that question, I wanted to talk to Chris Gladwin. If you were Silicon Valley based, Chris would probably be called a serial entrepreneur. Over the course of his career, Chris has founded four enterprise technology companies, a music subscription business, and a nonprofit. They've all created successful outcomes for employees, customers, and society. But Chris, he's a Chicago guy. He isn't in it for the hustle or the story or the drama. He's in it for the long haul, to build and grow teams that are willing to put in what he calls person centuries of work, to build and scale technologies that power the biggest, fastest growing companies in the world. And through efforts like P33, the organization he started to help build Chicago into a global tech leader, he's scaling what he knows so that untold numbers of new builders can benefit from all he's learned along the way. Chris's secret sauce, as you'll hear in our conversation, is a lack of ego coupled with a desire to listen to and deeply understand enterprise customers' biggest challenges so he and his teams can build what truly matters. So things went well at MIT for you, I presume. You ended up at Martin Marietta out of school, which is a predecessor to what many listeners will know as Lockheed Martin. Talk about some of those formative years for you and kind of what you learned about the economy, about business, about customers out of the gate. I worked at the group at Martin Marietta that was called Corporate Computing Standards. And what we did is we would evaluate all the different kinds of computer products, particularly personal computer products and networking, that you know, 100,000 or so people would use. And we would, you know, evaluate the best spreadsheets, the best printers. So I had this, you know, incredible opportunity to be a professional customer of enterprise IT products. I led a big email evaluation that was the first in the United States, maybe the first in the world, to connect together all the different email systems at Martin Marietta so everybody could email each other instead of having, you know, 10 different email accounts on all the different types of systems. And so I learned a lot about what it means to be an enterprise IT customer, what's important to them, what kind of problems they have, what kind of solutions they need. And it's really informed me throughout my whole career because it really, everything I've done since then has been on the vendor side of making enterprise IT products. And that intuition I have, that judgment I have from having spent, you know, five years as a professional customer has really been key to my success. 
Yeah, it sounds like you were customer obsessed before being customer obsessed was necessarily a thing. Talk though for a minute about the balance of understanding competition and kind of some of the other dynamics in the market in addition to customers and why kind of keeping customers though at the nucleus of that or on the top of that heap ends up being the recipe for success in your view. So I, I kind of see myself in those customers and I just, I would actually get upset with me or my company if we didn't treat them with respect and didn't really understand what their needs were. And a part of treating customers like that, particularly enterprise customers, is it's, they know a lot and they definitely understand competitive alternatives. And so we need to understand competitive alternatives and be realistic about them. We can't lie. I mean, it's easy to fall in love with your own company, your own products, because you're making them. And But you also have to be realistic. Like, is it really faster? Is it really better? What's it better at? What's it not better at? Because, you know, obviously nothing does everything awesome. So really having an honest dialogue with customers, you have to bring to the table enough unique value that matters to them. And then when you have that, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect in everything, but you've got to really be honest. And, and if you can establish that kind of honest communication, you know, that's essential. And, and that's something that I've really learned. And at times it's been controversial. My company's like, we can't tell them that, you know, we're not good at this. So we can't tell them that, you know, they should use this other thing. But I've always been that way where if it, if it really is a fit, we'll be all over it. You know, we're going to go win that business. But if it's not a fit, we should be the first to direct them to where there's a better alternative. You know, there's a sense that if you come to the table prepared in these kinds of conversations, you know, you're in enterprise software. I've spent a number of years in enterprise software. There's a lot to understand and appreciate about any given company's commercial opportunities and the dynamics of play in their category. And eight or nine out of 10 times, I got to imagine companies are across the table from somebody where, where they're saying they just, they fundamentally don't get something or other about the way we operate. And if, if you're that one, you could really stand out in lots of interesting ways, not just in a sales cycle, but in the context of a long-term relationship. A sophisticated enterprise customer has been through this before. You know, they've bought and deployed a variety of different products from a variety of vendors. And they understand that nothing's perfect. And there's going to be problems. And what really matters is, do you have the kind of honest relationship where you can really understand the needs and how to address not only the opportunities, but also the challenges that are going to come up? They're buying a relationship. You know, when you're providing an innovative new type of technology that's disruptive, disruptive in a good way, that creates a lot of change for the customer. And change is complicated. And even if everybody does it right, you know, you can have situations that, that occur when just the change creates some kind of problem. So sophisticated customers know this is going to happen. There's going to be challenges. And how well you respond to that is ultimately the measure of the quality. It's not just like, yeah, it could go this super fast. Okay, that's valuable. But it could go this super fast and you manage to deploy it and deal with the challenges, that, that's actually more valuable because the downside of something going really wrong is much greater than the upside of, you know, it's twice as fast as it used to be. So dealing with those downsides effectively is ultimately what defines the greatest amount of success. And if there's somebody listening who's an enterprise software builder or an aspiring software builder, any kind of technology platform for that matter, what are the kinds of downsides as you look at, let's call it the next half decade or decade of technology innovation? 
I think about things like privacy and, and security. Talk to me from a more educated position around understanding the enterprise technology space. What are the negative externalities that if I'm going to have to think about deploying the solution I'm inventing, sure, I'm going to promise that it's going to take you to the moon as a company, but on our way to the moon, what are going to be the air pockets that we go hit when we're in orbit? One of the things that people talk a lot about is the effect of Moore's law or an accelerating change in some kind of IT capability. You know, the network's getting faster, the storage is getting bigger, the compute is getting more powerful. And that's all true. And in some ways, that's easier to deal with that because it's just more of the same. What's happening at the same time for enterprise customers is the complexity that they are dealing with and their solutions is also accelerating. And that is harder to deal with. So that's, I think, the biggest kind of externality is that increasing amount of complexity just gets more and more difficult to deal with. Now, you can see it, you know, in the profitability and capabilities of these companies. I mean, they're doing incredible things in terms of serving their customers and creating value. But what it means for the enterprise IT operation is it just gets more and more complicated. And, you know, one way to look at this is the nature of the complexity of data ownership. You know, 20 years ago or so, you could look at data and say, who owns it? And you generally get one answer, like this person owns it for any piece of data. What's happened is the complexity of ownership has accelerated since then to where when you look at a piece of data or some data set and ask who owns it, you're going to get a very complicated answer. It's like, well, you know, what do you mean by ownership? There's different aspects to ownership. Who can delete it? Who can view it? Who creates it? Who has the ability to create derivative works? So that's just one aspect, you know, the data ownership aspect is also going through this, you know, accelerating complexity. And like everything else about IT systems generally has this accelerated complexity as well. So that's, I think, the biggest thing you're seeing. Yeah. And you have this migration over time from the origins of data in the enterprise, living more in backend operating systems like ERP, HRIS, FP&A, and then it gradually migrates you know, up the stack into cloud and into analytics to now where for many companies, data is the business, right? The thing I'm shipping is actually zeros and ones as opposed to atoms. And so you get to the point where potentially literally every employee in a company actually is a data owner because when your revenue is data, that's how it's got to be. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what enterprises are doing. People generally talk in the macro economy about this labor shortage. You can see it in the unemployment rate. You can see it in the number of open positions. But as you zoom in on enterprise IT, you know, people with, you know, these kinds of skills or the potential to have these kinds of skills, you see it both in new grads as well as experienced people. The demand for that, that kind of talent is so far above the number of people that have it. We're seeing like 1999, 2000 level demand, you see it in compensation. But the difference is, in 1999-2000, a lot of what fueled that was the stock market and the the P.E. ratio for technology companies just went to a, a place that didn't make sense. And eventually it normalized, the bubble burst. This time is different in that you're, you're seeing that level of demand again with limited supply. But the difference here is it's all driven by the amount of profit being made by these companies, the amount of genuine value creation. You know, you take the top 
five or six technology companies, you know, the trillions of dollars of profit they create on a yearly basis, you know, the tens of trillions of dollars of market cap they have, like that's real. That's not just some speculative stock price and it's not going away. We don't expect to see a bubble burst. Um, if anything, you know, this, this is here to stay and you're going to see this demand for years to come. And how can we as a society, if I take it all the way up to that level, make sure to be equipping people to address that demand on the supply side? Like if I go back to Chris Gladwin, the high school senior, discovering the fit with MIT, equipping himself for a future, you know, in the 80s, 90s, aughts, what's the next version of this look like? You know, what role do universities play? What role do organizations, not unlike P33, which you had a hand in standing up in Chicago, create? How do we develop the next cadre of talent to supply against those kinds of demands? Well, the good news is we know what works. You know, MIT is a perfect example. Like, MIT is a factory that produces people with these capabilities, period. And it's done it for century plus. You know, so more of that. <laughs> I mean, it, you could 10x all the top engineering schools, and all that would result is 10 times many people getting these great jobs and creating this kind of great value. The other aspect of this is how do we do this in a more inclusive way? And the the school that I've gotten, you know, very involved with is the Illinois Institute of Technology, Illinois Tech. Like their founding mission from 100 plus years ago was to do that for all kinds of people. They're one of the most transformational schools in the country where they can take a person from a lower socioeconomic background across genders, across nationalities, across ethnic groups, and transform them into kind of these upper middle class and upper class households, uh, earners that are creating this, you know, this value. There's an example where the, that part of the template is known as well. And so it's just as simple as, you know, you do that 10 times as much or 100 times as much, you're going to get this output. Since you mentioned Illinois Tech, I want to ask you about your relationship with Chicago. It's no accident that, you know, you talk about the power of working hard and being in the customer's shoes. But talk about the relationship you personally have cultivated and discovered that you have with Chicago as a community. Well, my first job, as we talked about, Martin Marietta was in Washington, D.C. And I felt... I felt like it really it's it's a federal government town and you can have tech companies there, but you're the sideshow. You're not the main event. The main reason I moved to Chicago is I wanted to be in a city where it was really a business city. I wanted my career to be in business and, and I felt like Chicago was a place to do it. Having gone through that now for 30 years, I have had a lot of success here and I've learned, you know, what the advantages are here. And um, I've really been able to figure out how to kind of create a world-leading technology engine in the form of, a, of new companies that build a team that goes and finds a discipline and really becomes a world leader in that and then translates that into economic value. And I, I've learned that that is very possible here in Chicago, but we're really underperforming for the assets we have. I mean, Chicago, second to Boston, is the second most producer of college graduates of any city in the United States. Uh, second to D.C., we have the second most software engineers. We have the best transportation infrastructure, really great cost of living, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have the elements to really create technology enabled tech-focused companies and innovation and value, but we're underperforming and we really should be a global tech leader. So that's why I helped start P33 was to 
transform the city. And it, we call it P33 because it's going to take some time. And we're talking about getting this done by 2033. It's to transform the city into a global tech leader. Talk a little bit more specifically, if you would, about what moved you to start P33 and what P33's role will be in Chicago's growth arc between now and 2033. Well, what motivated me to start P33 is is really coming to understand these things we've been talking about. I had started a company, my, my prior company called Cleversafe was the company that built the largest data storage systems in the world. And we really dominated that market in the most competitive of IT markets you can have. And, you know, our customers were the trillion dollar tech companies and the intelligence community and the telcos, like really demanding buyers. And we did it. You know, we were the world leader in that kind of technology, competing against, you know, folks from Cambridge and Palo Alto and all over the place. And it proved that you can do it. And there were certain advantages to doing it here in Chicago. There are other disadvantages as well. And so we had to kind of form our approach to take advantage of the advantages. And I knew coming out of that, that you could do that. And not just Clever Safe, not just me. There were other people doing it in Chicago as well, but I knew it could be done on a much, much broader scale. And as we were saying earlier, I knew Chicago was underperforming given the assets that we had. I guess I also felt like for me, where could I really have impact? And this is something I really knew. The credibility of Chicago, because of the results I had had and others, proved that it could be done. And I felt like, you know, this is the future of, of value creation. This is the future of job creation. If you want to have culture and you don't have these kind of economic engines in your metropolitan area, you're not going to have as much culture, you know, plain and simple. You're not going to be able to do as much philanthropic activity. You need this kind of economic engine. So I, I knew I had that opportunity. I knew I could have this highly leveraged impact. And so I wanted to take advantage of that. And that's what led to P33. To hear another episode of Breakthrough Builders, where I talk to a CEO who's helping scale entrepreneurial talent in a community, check out my conversation with Lakshmi Shinoy. Lakshmi is the CEO at Embark Collective, an organization that helps startup talent build bold, scalable, thriving companies in the Tampa Bay region. Lakshmi and I talked about how she drew on her experience within creative agencies and as a leader at 1871, the incubator in Chicago, to help get Tampa on the map as a rising hub for top tech entrepreneurs. It's episode seven of season three and the link is in the show notes. Now, back to the rest of my conversation with Chris Gladwin. And the businesses you've started, you've built for scale, you know, whether it's been subscription services or cloud storage or data platforms. And from a people standpoint, I've heard you talk about not just having great raw talent, but also harnessing patience and staying power so that you can go from not just zero to one, but also to scale in products and services. Can you talk about how you kind of cultivate and build a sense of, hey, be patient, stay the course? Yeah, so that's been one of the areas I've focused on, partly because of that experience I had at Martin Marietta. So I had some expertise on that. And then the four big startups I've done have all been focused on large-scale enterprise IT. And that's also fit with Chicago in that the advantages in Chicago are that you, you do have the second most college graduates of any city in the United States. And then if you start adding in places a little bit further away, like University of Illinois, University of Michigan, Purdue, Wisconsin, you just get to these crazy numbers of really talented people. And so you can put together teams of 100 plus engineers, and then you can have higher than Silicon Valley average quality in those engineers. And then you get retention rates 
that are significantly above the average for technology companies. So instead of, you know, two, three years average, you know, you can get eight, 10 years average. What that set of things is well suited for is projects that require person centuries of work to bring to market. You know, like when I mean a person century, I mean a hundred person years of work and multiple of those, you know, so like at Ocean, we're coming up on 300 person centuries of development. Okay, that's what it takes to build, you know, the world's largest data analysis platform. That's just the price of poker if you want to play. Because of the efficiency of doing that in Chicago, the retention, you know, the the lower cost of living, the higher quality of candidates, especially young candidates who grow into that expertise, that then creates a structural advantage if you're doing large-scale engineering. Turning into maybe your personal perspectives on leadership, you talked at the top about being a professional customer. And when I hear that, I think a lot about listening and empathy. Maybe talk about the role that deep empathy and listening to understand has played for you in your journey as a builder and how you would encourage people to develop that part of their DNA. There's a myth that I think is fading that the way that innovation works is this, you know, really smart person sits in their garage and thinks big thoughts and outcomes breakthrough innovation. There have been things like that that have occurred in the past, but all those ideas are done. <laughs> the only things that are left are the really, you know, harder ones. It's not at all unusual to be, like I said, spending five, six years kind of learning what to build while you're building it. And not only does it require person centuries of work just to kind of build version one, it requires an extraordinary amount of communication with the customer. Like, I, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much experience you have. Like, you cannot know in the level of resolution required what the market needs, you know? So, like, one of the areas we focus on at Ocean is ad tech, digital ad exchange, data analysis, um, particularly on the demand side, people that buy these ads. With the initial customer we had there, we documented what they needed and it was about 250 to 300 pages long of detail. That customer had to spend hours and hours like talking to us and explaining like, well, what kind of queries do you run? How's the data structured? Where does the data come from? What's the cardinality of the data? And on and on and on. And we needed that much resolution of information to build something that would be useful. And so how you do that, not just with that customer, but in any of these markets, I mean, that's very typical. You have to be really good at listening and learning. I mean, taking notes. And, you know, the, there's this ego thing that you, you can have because, you know, you've worked so hard and you're, you think you're really smart. And so you think you know, but you don't. <laughs> like listening involves like setting your ego back and, and really learning from someone else and internalizing that knowledge. So I, I think that's one of the things that I am really good at having done this so long is I've learned how to listen and learn how to be taught and I, you know, culturally, I think I've also gotten good at building an organization that knows how to listen and knows how to be taught by the customer and, you know, engaging in these conversations to where they will tell you. I mean, the way I started Ocean was very, very simple. Prior company made the largest data storage systems in the world, CleverSafe. We really focused on the 300 largest bit storing organizations in the world, period. And we knew them all. We didn't have them all as customers, but we sure chased them all as customers and we knew them. And they all started to say the same thing. And, you know, the, the limitless scale storage systems that we were providing were working. But many, the biggest of the big, were saying, yeah, but I also need some kind of limitless scale data analysis platform and I can't find it. And let me tell you, when the biggest 
enterprise IT operating organizations of the world start telling you they can't find something, like get your pen out, start taking notes, and, and you know take notes for as long as they'll talk to you because they're giving you gold. Because if they can't find that it doesn't exist and if they need it, it is worth a lot of value. And so I just simply wrote down everything they said, you know, asked them a lot of questions, and that led me to what we're doing now at Ocean. I would just want to ask you a couple more here, Chris. Sometimes it's said that we're the average of the people we surround ourselves with. Who are the kinds of people that you have tended to surround yourself with on your journey as a builder? For sure, one of the, the essential things is just the competence. Like you have to know how to do that job. We keep honing our process over like 30 years to really figure out who could really do this work. And we've gotten good at it. The other things you look for are they have to want to do the kind of work that we do. And, and as I was saying earlier, you know, this is not easy. It's person centuries of work. And it's not going to work for someone who doesn't really enjoy it. I always have this fantasy, and I know friends of mine who have started multiple companies, they always think, well, the next time around, I won't have to work quite so much because, you know, I'm, I'm better at it. I've got all this experience. And that is a fantasy. I can tell you from experience. I see it not only in myself, but all the other people I'm working with who were either at Cleversafe or other companies. You know, 100 sales calls is 100 sales calls. And it takes, you know, 500 hours to set them up and prep and follow up. Like, that is how it is. And so unless you really enjoy that grind, it's going to be difficult. You're not going to be good at it. You're not really going to do it. So we we also look for, are you driven to really do this kind of work? Because it's hard. So that's that combination of like, that really is something you want to do. You're driven and you have the competency. Chris, as a lifelong technologist, what are some either categories of technology or some innovation vectors that are really interesting to you right now? You know, as companies get into this stage that Ocean's in, where we have our initial customer deployments and now we're ramping up, it, it really becomes all-consuming, even for me the fourth time around. What you're seeing is a disruption, a disruptive breakthrough is going on, where previously the scale at which people could analyze data was limited. And you had a separation of analysis or databases and storage because the analysis was so much more expensive than the storage. What's happening is those two worlds are converging. What we're, what we're seeing at Ocean is we're able to deliver data analysis performance on par with DRAM. And right now it's about 15 cents a gig. So instead of $5 a gig, it's 15 cents a gig. And it's as fast, you know, for large-scale analytics. And the price of of that is dropping faster than the price of spinning disk. So essentially, you're going to have the cost of spinning disk at the performance of DRAM. So you'll be able to analyze at high performance, at hyperscale, all the data you store. It's just going to change things. And the most interesting things are the things that are really the hardest to anticipate. Every time you have these kinds of disruptive changes, part of what it's used for is to make what was being done bigger, faster, cheaper. That's going to happen. Campaign management companies are going to analyze more data faster. But that's usually only 20% of the ultimate use of a disruptive technology. 80% is all the new stuff that's only enabled by the disruptive technology. I'm pretty sure that the engineers at Bell Labs when they invented packet switching and the internet were not thinking, yeah, one day we're going to have this thing called YouTube. And it's just always so hard to imagine. Like, what are going to be the 80% of the new uses 
of this disruptive technology. If regular people can analyze an exabyte of data, a thousand petabytes, a million terabytes, if they could do it, what would they do with it? You know, and some of it's going to be stupid and silly, and some of it's going to be changing culture, and some of it's going to be profound, and it's going to be a whole range of stuff, but it's going to be new stuff that's hard to imagine. And that's what we're seeing in the data analysis world is we're just at the beginning. You know, the first things we're doing at Ocean is making things better, bigger, faster, cheaper that existed. And we see other database companies doing similar stuff. But what you're about to see is this whole world of never before hard to wrap your head around new stuff that's about to happen with hyperscale data analytics. If you're giving advice to somebody who is building for the first time, what would you say to them in terms of the wisdom you've had the honor of accumulating over the years? Well, that's easy. The number one reason new businesses, particularly something that's innovative, fail is that they don't last long enough. People are almost always right about the value that they're creating and the fact that it's valuable. But they're always wrong on how long it's going to take. Like, always. You know, I've done as many times as I can. I'm like, man, I underestimated the time. Like, you just don't last long enough. And so you got to figure out how to last. And, you know, it's not easy because you run out of money. Well, how do you make it last longer? How do you put yourself in a position to be there when the market's there? To be there for long enough to actually finish building it. To be there long enough to explain it, to sell it. It always takes longer than you think. And you just got to find a way to last. I love it. Well, I will have this conversation lasting between my ears for a little while. Quite a lot to think about and reflect on. So Chris Gladwin, I'm better off for the connection. Thank you for the discussion today. All right. Thanks, Jesse. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Breakthrough Builders. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review and tell a friend about the show. Breakthrough Builders is a Qualtrics Studios original hosted and executive produced by me, Jesse Pierwall. An awesome team of people puts this show together, including our show writer, Todd Bagnall, the folks from Studio Pod Media in San Francisco and Vayner Talent in New York. From Studio Pod Media, our executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. Producer is Sterling Shore. Editing and music is by Ryan Crowther. And our show coordinator is Kayla Sowell. From Vayner Talent, publicity and promotion support come from Samantha Heaps, Hannah Park, Lindsay Blum, and Ivana Lynn. The show's designers are Baron Santiago and Vensuka Shindavajak. Our websites by Gregory Haydon and photography is by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Ben Hawken, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundine.